0: Support for Talk of the Towns comes
1: from the Maine Community Foundation, a nonprofit organization, partnering with people in communities statewide to strengthen Maine through grants and scholarships on the web at MaineCF.org.
2: It's ten o'clock and you are tuned to WERUFM eighty nine point nine Blue Hill one oh two point nine Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Talk of the Towns with host Ron Beard is next.
0: Good morning, and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities to share what works to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine, with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine, and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices, operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. This morning, we're going to be talking about managing the commons, fisheries in down east Maine. We have some wonderful guests who can help us with that topic. Um, Robin Alden of Penobscot East Resource Center. Welcome to you, Robin. Thank you, Ron. Ted Hoskins is the uh, uh, Minister to the to the Coast and the Fisheries from Maine Seacoast Mission. And you're also a board member of the Penobscot East Resource Center. That's Welcome, right.
3: Ted. Good to be here, Ron. Thank you.
0: And Aaron Doherty. Aaron is um, the... Project director for something called the Down East Initiative, and we'll learn more about uh, that as the program goes along. Welcome to you, Aaron.
2: All right, thank you, Ron.
0: Maybe each of you could give a, a little bit of background, kind of a thumbnail sketch of how you got to to this work. Um, Robin, you're the uh, former uh, fisheries commissioner, but you had a long um, history in um, kind of covering um, fisheries um, on the on the news side too. Tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Okay, I I uh, actually. Was taking a year off from college many, many years ago and uh, started interviewing fishermen for the local paper just to talk about fisheries. That's what happens in Stonington, and I thought it ought to be in the paper when I was a freelance journalist. And I was captivated by what fishermen knew and the difficulties that fishermen's knowledge had getting into the bureaucracy and the academic world. So that was the origin of the idea for Commercial Fisheries News. I ran Commercial Fisheries News for many years. then, as you said, was commissioner uh, in the mid-90s during the King administration, early years, and um, now I'm involved in this resource center.
0: Great, and we're going to talk about that in just a minute. Ted, um, your background, please, if you could. Well, I'm a minister of the United Church of Christ,
3: have been all my life, and uh, when I got to be about 60, I I heard of an opening of the Maine Seacoast Mission as uh, minister to the uh, outer islands uh, aboard the sunbeam. And so I took that. And then in the in the midst of that, I heard a, a talk by uh, a professor at Cody Institute at St. Francis Xavier in Anaganish, Nova Scotia, that just alerted my innards mm-hmm. about the needs for work within the fisheries. And I uh, uh, chased him down and uh, signed up for a course and went up and learned about community-based resource management and uh, decided really to change the direction of my ministry. And I still work with the mission, but my work is with the coastal communities and the fisheries, really trying to involve ourselves in community-based resource management. And it's been facilitated, of course, by uh, my connection and involvement in in, uh, the Stoning Fisheries Alliance and the Penobscot East Resource Center, which have been very important organizations on the journey. So here I am.
0: Great. Wonderful that you could be with us. Aaron, um, you're um, a little bit newer to the game. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you got interested in this work.
2: Um, Well, I uh, recently went to grad school out at the University of Oregon in Eugene, and while I was there, I studied uh, natural resource management of forestry and uh, a system that they're using, uh, working with environmentalists and loggers, uh, community members, watershed participants, and so forth. And Uh, coming up with ideas of how to collectively manage the resource uh, while also ensuring that they'll have jobs for the future and uh, protect it so that it's it's done in a sustainable way. And and when I looked at what Penobscot East Resource Center is doing here uh, with the the ground fishery down east and started talking to Robin and Ted, it sounded like a lot of the work that uh, we want to do here is very similar to uh, to what uh, people are doing in forestry in terms of uh, managing the resource for the commons.
0: Mm. So this notion of a commons um, takes place both with uh, federally owned or state-owned forest lands, but mm-hmm. also with the fishery. Um, Robin, maybe you can help um, get us started thinking about what what the commons refers to. This is a, a statement that goes back to somebody named Barry Commoner. Is that right, Barry Commoner, the tragedy no. of the commons back in you know, the 70s? Correct. That's no? before my time, Okay, so I'll have to trust the,
1: you. Um, The idea of the commons is that in an area, whether it be grazing land or um, the ocean, whatever, where you don't have property rights and you have people using the resources in that area, um, that human nature being what it is, you can have a race to extract those resources. And that without property rights, um, there isn't a way easily to control that or to have people's incentives lined up with taking care of the long-term health of that piece of grazing land or fish uh, so bottom in, or whatever. In a New
0: England town, there might have been a commons where people grazed their sheep. And my understanding is that there wasn't any control as to how many sheep an in individual grazed and, and uh, whether they managed that or not. It was how common you, land.
3: How you set limits mm-hmm. uh, on the, the use of the land and without someone being responsible for the stewardship of it, the care of it, then it is overgrazed or overused Mm -hmm. or overexploited, and then we're all in trouble. Mm
1: -hmm. One of the interesting things that's happened um, in our understanding of commons is Garrett Hardin was the one who first wrote the um, article called Tragedy of the Commons. And um, since then, there's been much more understanding of traditional uh, methods of, of limits that were not in law that actually did provide that stewardship. And one of the things we're doing in fisheries right now is trying to look at some of the things that happened in the lobster fishery and so forth um, and see if we can use those in other fisheries where those things don't exist.
0: Mm. So maybe just talk a little bit about, for listeners, um, the lobster industry as as one model for kind of self-regulation um, around how many lobsters were taken and, and uh, whether there were egg-bearing lobsters. Just talk a little bit about that piece.
1: Um, one of the... The the lobster fishery has what I call common-sense-type rules. They're things that people can understand. We protect mothers. We protect babies. We protect um, uh, the habitat that they uh, live in. And we do that, as most listeners probably know, by not allowing egg-bearing lobsters to be taken, by be notching lobsters that are bearing eggs so that they will go through a couple of more mating seasons before they're able to be harvested legally. We have traps that exclude juveniles so you don't have to throw them over. We also have a measure so that you don't do it. We have a measure, large measure, so that we protect the adults, so there's a really good age structure in the population. And in Maine, we only harvest lobsters uh, with trap, which means that we're protecting the habitat. So those are all common-sense, ecologically-based rules. Way beyond that, there are lots of other things, such as an apprentice-based entry system, so that you have to know the rules and and be acculturated in what those how to live within the limits before you get a license. And also, um, traditionally, lobstering is territorial, and that is a very um, uh, constructive thing for uh, not enabling people to become. What what is technically actually called roving bandits, where you go from place to place fishing on pulses of abundance.
0: Mm. And we didn't learn that lesson fast enough to deal with sea urchins, for instance. Sea urchins was a relatively you know fast growing um, species because of some market demand, but we don't have a sea urchin fisheries to the, the extent we did. And is that the? I mean, are those two kind the, of opposite ends of the story? That's
1: a beautiful example. Yes. And the urchin fishery is one of those things where when you have a sudden new market and an abundance of product, it is so difficult for government to say no to that kind of money. Mm. And what happened was before the state acted, the fishery was basically already, the bloom was off the rose. So Mm. um, that's this is such a lesson for us that the limits have to come internally. We have to recognize that human beings in our gear can... We know we can fish these things out, so we have to be right up front and and uh, recognize and we're what the work we're doing. And I sh- want other people to say mm-hmm. it is is it's the fishing industry that needs to say this. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
3: right. To get the stewardship out of the hands, not out mm-hmm. away from the hands right. of the of the governing uh, bodies, but into the minds of the fisher, recognizing because they know what's going on with the resource, and unless they have a very short view of, mm-hmm. of how they participate in that. Uh, it it can be gone before you know it. And when you uh, look at the work of the Estonian Fisheries Alliance, for example, and other alliances uh, in Canada as well as here, the principles that they put together help them think about these matters Mm. and provide a grid of thought uh, about how you go at fishing Mm. and protecting juveniles, protecting habitat, protecting nursery grounds, etc. So that uh, we don't Go too far, too quickly.
0: So, th- really, the the Fisheries Alliance, the Fisheries Alliance, kind of led to the creation of the Penobscot East Resource Center. I mean, in, in some ways, in terms yes. of yes, so yeah, talk it, it a really bit did bit about the alliance and, yeah. and those principles that you okay. mentioned, Ted.
3: Well, the alliance uh, or the uh, Stony and Fisheries Alliance came into being uh, as mm-hmm. a response to uh, individuals who were feeling the crunch from the changes in regulatory life, uh, particularly around ground fish, and then it spread, of course, to others, clams, lobsters, and others. And they had met for a period of time. And and as part of that process, we visited uh, uh, the Bay of Fundy uh, Resource Center and um, learned from them of the principles that they had put together. And in essence, we pirated those principles. We added to them and changed them a bit. But but they're pretty much the same because you need the same principles from which to work. And as we moved along, we recognized that the activity that would be required to follow through on the concerns that we had could not be facilitated in any uh, larger way by a uh, very limited local group that it needed a broader scope. And so we began talking about a, a resource center that could help people on a variety of ways over a a larger geographic period. And the Alliance basically said, uh, this is not something that we can do. We have to focus on who we are, where Mm -hmm. we are, Mm -hmm. and and very much place-based. And uh, so they, in essence, encouraged us to uh, think in broader terms. And so that's what we did. And out of that came the initial thoughts and development and, and personnel for developing the Penobscot East Resource Center.
0: Mm. Let's go. Let's go back, though. Um, can you not necessarily recite them? But what were some of the principles that helped you work together with a group of, of uh, fishing interests?
3: Well, there are both uh, principles of operation and principles that uh, deal with the ecology. And I, I mentioned a few of them. You know, protection of the habitat, mm-hmm. protection of nursery grounds, and uh, protection of food chain. And then we went on to other issues such as you know. Uh, Participation is required for empowerment. Uh, we can't expect things to change on the uh, legislative or managerial level if we don't participate in that process. And mm. that becomes a part of our understanding of who we are. Uh, also, concern for the, uh, the community, recognizing that the community has a specific role uh, in, in all of this fishery management stuff that that we need that a healthy fishery demands a healthy community, a healthy community demands mm-hmm. a healthy fishery, and so there 's an interplay there which is very important. We have to pay attention both directions
0: so it seems like some, some, and i 'll come, come to Robin in just a minute, but it seems like in some of those principles you 're kind of defying the economic models that exist that says it 's all about um, dividends to a stockholder or profits. You're saying that there's a wider set of circumstances that people need to to take into account in any en- economic enterprise.
3: Absolutely, and that includes the whole community. And uh, what we have in down east Maine are many communities that are centered around the fishing enterprise. And it may be boat building, it may be uh, boat repair, it may be ice, it may be uh, transportation, may be a wide variety of things, but they're all dependent upon uh, fisheries as such and we have to pay attention to each other hmm. and be in contact with each other and as as we work in the Panosk East Resource Center uh, and in the Down East Initiative we are concerned about developing community alliances that, that involve not just the fishermen but also the people in the community so that we can attend to all of those needs at the same time because they're
0: interdependent. Mm. You're, tuned, you're tuned to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We're talking about managing the commons, fisheries in down east Maine. Our guests include Ted Hoskins of the Maine Sea Coast Mission and he's also on the board of the Penobscot East Resource Center. Robin Alden, who's the director of the Penobscot East Resource Center and Aaron Doherty, who's uh, the project director for Down East Initiative. Robin, so the 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 alliance led to the creation of the the center. How how, um, how did that work, and and what's the center all about?
1: The center is basically uh, organization. our Our mission is to secure a future for fishing communities from the Penobscot Bay Islands east. Um, we think that that um, these two counties, Hancock and Washington County, have um, the, we still have fishing communities. We have a very fragile situation right now. We've got. Um, in the state overall, we're dependent for fisheries on lobster. It's 76% of the state landings. I would say down east is probably higher than that. Um, I don't have the specifics, but um, and so we're looking at at anything that anybody in a community thinks it can be tiny. It can be, you know, how to how to fix a right away for a clam digger so that they can get to the shore, or it can be anything that small groups of people can work on at a local level that will help secure the fact that we are going to be fishing communities in the long run and on a bigger scale that means um some big projects um like the down east initiatives to say let's see if we can't re-diversify our fishery because we've lost so much we used to be Mm -hmm. the only way you make it fishing is to be able to do a number of different things if you want to stay local if you want to become big and Go and not be at home at night with your family. Then you can get a larger boat and go chase them somewhere. But to fish locally, you've got to have a diversified portfolio.
0: So that meant that lobstering in some seasons, shrimping in other seasons, scalloping. So it was that yep. looking at was, what was there and, and kind of gearing for that particular season or that particular activity.
1: And uh, Absolutely. And then over the course of a person's life, you may change that mix because of your health and financial needs and then... As uh, ecology changes and as markets change, that's going to change over time, too.
3: Yeah, I think mm-hmm. an important part of that, Robin, uh, as you certainly uh, have articulated a variety of times, is that the fishermen in that diversified fishery actually became stewards mm-hmm. because they recognized that when some particular resource was in a downturn, they wouldn't target it, and they'd stay away from it and do on, uh, work on something that had abundance. And, uh, of course, in the long run, as regulation came in, that worked to their detriment because it was based on landings and uh, with with scarce resources sometimes, and and they would be cut out of of, uh, some of the permit
1: options. And Ted's just said the most important thing about all of this, which is that we can do a better job of managing these resources if – it's not as if we're telling the state and the feds to go away, but we're saying if we're taking responsibility and have the authority to – Make some decisions locally. We can make much better decisions. When I first started the paper, I was—I used to say—I'm trying to give a place to give, ha, make a place to have voice for people who are sitting in the coffee shop saying what they ought to do is whatever
0: because they knew
1: <laughs> they could based see on their experience. these things right. happening, and they right. also could see when certain regulations were were proposed how it was going to play out and who and. So, sometimes the regulators couldn't do that. The analogy that my husband, Ted Ames, uses is um, is uh, if you have uh, someone in Washington saying where to when to plow the streets in Stonington, they're probably not going to make the right decision. <laughs> well, they
0: used, to, they used to tell the story in Russia that the streets were plowed until May 1st every year. Well, if there was a snowstorm on, you know, May 15th, you know, you didn't get your snow plowed. So, yeah, you know, that, that, uh, that story t- rings true. This, this notion of, of uh, kind of local stewardship, we have some fisheries that have kind of a local stewardship. Think of clams, for instance, where there's a, a clam flat. The, the clams don't go anywhere um, uh, except in their their juvenile stage, but Maine's had a history of kind of managing flat by flat or town by town.
1: It's such a good example. You know, as the former commissioner will say, here is a great example of why the state shouldn't be threatened by this community-based management idea, because um, the clam business, the reason the the state delegates to the towns is because they can't possibly afford to do the level of detail of management that's necessary to take care of local clam flats, yeah. and so when the towns step up the ta- the whole state gets a better mm. better value from their natural resources mm-hmm.
3: yeah I think behind that is the the awareness that uh, towns are able to in other words we're not able to uh, regulate all. Resources, but the state has given clam management or local towns an option mm-hmm. to move into clam management, mm-hmm. and it 's picked up by some and not by others
1: it, which is also a good idea, yeah. which it doesn 't have to be done, but if there 's a, a local group with capacity to to make these suggestions and decisions
0: and then that runs a little bit i 'm um, sure it 's frustrating to some clam diggers from other places because they say, well, this is a state public resource." But you're managing in Southwest Harbor or, or Stonington, whatever, a lo- kind of a local resource. Who gets access to that, quote, unquote, public resource? That becomes a, a challenge. And now
1: you're back to the commons issue. Mm-hmm. And I think the fact that, that almost all levels of management from local on up have come to is that it can't be wide open. Mm-hmm. And it runs counter to the law to some extent. You you um, control access only under duress because our maritime law is means it comes from British uh, uh, high seas law and it's that that's open mm-hmm. area but we have to find ways to control ourselves because we have outsmarted the fish.
0: Mm-hmm. So tell me a little bit more about how Penobscot East Resource Center is organized, who's involved, and and then we'll talk about some of the projects you're involved in.
1: We. Um, we are a nonprofit, and we take our uh, funding from various different grant sources and private donations. Um, we have a staff of uh, about a core staff of about seven right now. I th- think I'm not sh- we've been growing <laughs> recently, and I would have to count it up. but um, and we have and we have we basically work in two ways. One is trying to start alliances and help. Communities um, do things that they want to do, and we're just starting to be able to operate beyond the bounds of Stonington, Deer Isle, that peninsula, um, and so that's one big area that bumps into the Downeast Initiative, which I know we'll talk about in a minute, um, which is our groundfish project, and then the other um, area is community-based science, and that the the epitome of that is our lobster hatchery. And so we run a lobster hatchery in Stonington at the Stonington Lobster Co-op. And our, I don't know if you want to hear all about that, but that's a, um, it's, it's a production scale hatchery. This year, we've um, released sixty-five thousand stage four lobsters into the waters of Zone C.
0: And, and
3: you're going to we'll, uh, have some more tomorrow. We'll have correct? more. Yeah. yeah.
0: So let, I guess we have a little little lesson on lobsters because they don't come in you know they don't come in large. They come in, in very small first. So tell us a little bit about the development of a lobster and, and how a hatchery works.
1: Okay. Um, the idea of a hatchery is to take the uh, lobster larvae through the Stages where they have the highest natural mortality. So you basically try to release them when they've run the gauntlet, and um, are ready to settle into the rocks and and start to be real lobsters. Mm-hmm. Um, lobsters start with eggs on the underside of the tail. Or anyone who's eaten a lobster has seen the red row inside, probably at some time. That those those are the eggs. They're eventually extruded under the tail, and after about a year, they uh, hatch. They there are three planktonic stages where they look like little shrimp, basically. And they float in the water, and they take, they go wherever the wind, tide, and current take them.
0: And things are eating them.
1: And things are eating them. <laughs> they are big-time food. <laughs> so um, at stage four, they look like a little lobster. And that in the wild, that takes about two months, somewhere between 40 and 60 days. And then... Um, the, those are super swimmers. They can move around. They can go up and down and they can move very fast. Uh, at that point, near the end of the stage 4 period, they're looking for the bottom and trying to find good habitat. And once they shed that le- next time into stage 5, they are on the bottom, they don't swim anymore, and they are lobsters, mm-hmm. as we know them. Um,
0: so the the hatchery takes them to which stage again?
1: They They take them... <clears throat> we're doing two things now, but The the hatchery is designed to take them through stage four and let them go. Um, We are the purpose of the hatchery. This this is an idea that originated from the Stonington Fisheries Alliance and the Stonington Lobster Co-op members. um, Rapidly spread to the Zone C Council, and basically the idea was we ought to figure out whether hatcheries can help us if we ever need it. People were pretty shaken by the Long Island Sound lobster collapse. also, shaken by how dependent we are on lobsters right now, and, and so this is a a fisherman in, uh, initiated effort to see if we can develop insurance. Um, does it work? Uh, we thought because there's so many fishermen involved that we could figure out whether hatcheries could help rebuild little local bays and coves, not Penobscot Bay, but you know somebody 's cove or some little area um, that has been. Not receiving juvenile lobsters from wind tide and current for some reason recently, and everyone can identify places like that.
0: But in the past, they had a supported a lobster That's population. R- right okay.
1: And um, the Rick Wally, the uh, scientist from Bigelow Lab that we're working with, has does a, a coastwide juvenile settlement uh, index every year. He dives looking for how many stage five. Juvenile lobsters. There are in specific cobble habitat where they're meant to be. The eastern three zones, C, B, and A. We're in C in Stonington. Um, have uh, empty habitat. There is there. We have plenty of lobsters. We're catching good lobsters. Thirty-four mil, point three million dollars worth of seafood came into Stonington last year, and most of those were lobsters. But there is habitat that's empty of these juvenile lobsters, so it's a good place to try this. And so, uh, the other thing we're committed to doing, in addition to um, putting lobsters in all nine districts of Zone C and and you know, um, learning from this, we're we're explicitly learning by doing research, diving before and after, and using a control plot to try to figure out whether these lobsters are surviving and the. This has never been done at the scale that we're trying it. We're working with Bigelow Lab, and we're also working with Mount Desert Island Biological Lab. David Toll, who's a geneticist down there, is going to, as we start to uh, find the lobsters after they're um, released, we will have banked the genetic material from the uh, mother's egg mass and the mother's, and um, we'll test what we find against that to see if, they came from the hatchery. So this is an exciting um, science uh, piece of, of real research, and it's also a huge community science project. Mm. Last thing I'll say is the purpose of the hatchery, in addition to all of those things I've said, is for us to learn how to do this together, to learn that last year, for example, when we released stage fours for the research and we didn't find any, that's not that doesn't mean they died. It means... That wasn't the way to do it. This year we're raising them one more stage to stage five just for the research Mm. because we know they'll stay where we put them and it'll be a better. Mm. Um, So we're learning how to fail together. We're learning how to organize ourselves. We're learning how to raise money. Um, uh, This is a fisherman-supported hatchery effort in addition to a lot of generous community members and and a few grant people.
3: In essence, uh, Robin, aren't you indicating that this whole process that we're going into is learning how to do a lot of these things together as fishermen and as communities, that there's a lot for us to learn. And whether we're working with the Down East Initiative or with the Penobscot East or the um, Stony Fisher's Alliance or any local group, there are a lot of skills that we have to learn and how to use the advantage of, um, uh, of our various interests and skills.
1: And these skills, there are many skills. Sometimes they're not even recognized as skills, mm. and we definitely need to develop them. Right.
0: Yeah. We're, you're tuned to Talk of the Towns this morning. We're talking about managing the commons, fisheries in down east Maine. And we welcome your calls at any time. If you'd like to participate in this conversation, give us a call toll-free at one 625 9378 or locally, 469-0500. Perhaps you've got a question, or perhaps you'd like to um, share your experience or your perspective around the issue of managing the commons. How do we do that? How do we share the commons, and how do we share the work um, that goes into stewardship of the commons? Our guests in the studio are Robin Alden, director of the Penobscot East Resource Center. Ted Hoskins, Maine Seacoast Mission, is also a board member of the Penobscot East Resource Center. And Aaron Daugherty of the Down East Initiative. Uh, He's the project director there. Aaron, I think we'll turn to you at this point. Um, we've been talking about fisheries. You said your background was in forestry. Forestry, um, or at least the, you know, some of your graduate work was there. Forestry, you can count the trees. They don't move around. Now you're involved in fish. <laughs> t- right. t- tell us a little bit about the differences that you're beginning to see as you, as you understand the, the, the application of some of the principles you learned about um, in the north- Northwest around forestry and applying it to fisheries.
2: Um, sure, that's that's actually a great question because you're absolutely right that you can see the forest, but you can't see the fish. And I think that that is uh, is central to um, as the the resource starts to get depleted, it's hard to understand exactly what's happening to it until you until you get some sort of scientific evidence, until you get uh, the local ecological knowledge from fishermen or or some other way of telling that uh, something's happened to the fish. Um, or the and, habitat, right? Or the habitat. Right. In, in the case of um, in the case of forestry, it's it's a little bit more obvious, um, and I think that people react to it a little bit quicker. Uh, but here, it seems like it's it's taken a little bit longer, and it's a little bit more of a mystery. And, and until you actually bring in the fishermen, like I said, and that's uh, part of what we're trying to do, is is bring in that local e- ecological knowledge that fishermen have and tie it into uh, the management decisions that are being made at the federal level. Um, Through the Regional Management Council, that's that's making decisions for fisheries down east.
0: Mm. So maybe um, either you or Robin could just describe that that nesting of of regulation. I think that's a a term, Robin. You've uh, certainly used in the past. How are the fisheries management in terms of we've talked about um, both both the uh, the the clams at the local level, lobsters is kind of at a a state level. You're you're talking about federally managed resources now, Aaron. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. the, the Down East Initiative is working on um, ground fish in federal waters down east, and that uh, federal waters start from the state limit, which is at three miles, out to the federal limit, which is 200 nautical miles. And so the the governing body that oversees this is the New England Fishery Management Council. It's part of the National Marine Fisheries Service, and uh, the representatives for that council come from from each of the New England states. They're uh, delegates uh, appointed by the governor, and so our uh, Department of Marine Resources Commissioner is uh, one of the members who sits on that council.
0: Mm-hmm. And and first of all, what, what's a groundfish? I mean, again, most listeners probably have an understanding of that, but we we need to talk about the the range of species that are, are called groundfish. Sure.
2: Um, well, there there are quite a few. It's um, the category is multi-species groundfish include uh, cod, haddock, pollock, uh, flounder. Um, there's there's quite a few. Yeah. Yep. All of it.
0: And and what's the history of of that particular fishery in the Down East region? Um, any any of you, just go ahead, Aaron. Um.
2: Sure. Well, historically, each of the communities along the coast from Penobscot Bay east uh, had a thriving groundfish industry, uh, and and it's been that way, uh, you know, since these were since colonial times, uh, and and even recently in in the nineteenth and twentieth century, there were quite a number of boats out of all those ports that depended on their local waters, uh, meaning the the coastal shelf area. And so there were historically uh, small boat, uh, day boat fishermen who would go out and and make their catch and bring it in at the end of the day. And uh, the the problem is that as the coastal shelf has been fished out, that's become harder and harder for fishermen to catch, uh, which has been uh, which which helped to start the decline of groundfish and the groundfish industry down east,
0: and so the fishermen um, and women, I suppose, who were who were using those federal waters weren't necessarily from the coast of Maine. So the pressures on that fishery weren't just from these local harbors going in back in a, on a day trip.
2: Yeah, yeah. There's there's been a lot of pressure in uh, in terms of uh, effort on groundfish down east uh, as. As uh, other areas were closed off to fishermen or other areas were fished out, uh, fishermen tended to pile into the Gulf of Maine, especially uh, one example is, um, I believe it was the early 90s when part of uh, George's Bank was overfished, that uh, fishermen from there came up to the Gulf of Maine. As, as that happened, you pile more fishermen into a smaller area and they deplete the fish faster. And so it's especially bad for the people who actually live here. And and as uh, other people go home and as fish come back in other waters, then they can go back there. But Maine fishermen don't really have anywhere else to go. Uh, these are the waters that they've fished historically. And uh, if the fish are depleted, then uh, they don't, their their only choice is to stop catching ground fish and catch lobster while they're doing well now or, or get out of the fishery. And, um, you know, if they're lobster fishermen, then hopefully the, the lobster are going to continue to do well for a long time. Otherwise, we're going to be in in uh you know a serious predicament
0: mm. and and so the, the the goal or the the purpose of the down east initiative talk a little bit about that. Sure. We'll take a phone call and then come back to some more of the details
2: okay uh, well, the down east initiative is a major campaign to restore ground fish down east and to restore access for those fishermen who would like to catch ground fish as a way to to supplement their catch and so um, at least in the near term and and possibly for the long term we we probably won't have uh, fishermen catching exclusively ground fish, especially the way that they historically were caught in the, in, in the numbers that they were caught down here. Uh, but it'll be more of a, a traditional fishery that's rotated in with lobster and scallops and so forth. Um, and so we are, uh, over the past several months, we've teamed up with a number of other Organizations, uh, fisheries groups, and environmental groups uh, from around Maine, including the Midcoast Fishermen's Association, uh, some fishermen from uh, Southern Maine, uh, Nature Conservancy, and a few others, in uh, pushing. Uh, For a system of area-based management of ground fish throughout New England. And um, this idea has been put on hold temporarily, but we're still moving forward and developing the idea a little bit more with fishermen down east. And uh, and a good example of that is last night we had a great meeting with a number of fishermen in Stonington, and uh, the fishermen voiced their ideas about how to... Uh, allocate catch within an area uh, what sort of conservation measures to use and uh, we feel that the most effective way to manage ground fish is to uh, to bring in these fishermen and to allow their voice to be heard um, so we're, we're going to be having similar conversations with fishermen in Jonesport on uh, Mount Desert Island and uh, Ellsworth and Winter Harbor and so throughout the Downeast region and and this is we're at the point where this is is really starting to take off now so
0: great so. we'll come back to that in just a moment we'll, i'll remind you that you can participate as well by calling one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight, 625 9378 or locally 4690500 we do have a caller go ahead with your question or comment please hi i was wondering um i was talking to a marine biologist uh of the day, and he said that codfish numbers were down so much that there was some kind of like a little snail or something that was eating the uh, you know small larval, you know, whatever they are, uh, codfish, and he said that maybe they cannot recover. They can never come back. And I was also wondering uh, if uh, the co- the people there know anything about the fact that uh, uh, I have not caught a pollock underneath a dock for two or three years now. And I was wondering if uh, pollock have disappeared from uh, the whole uh, down east coast, or they're just... Era, what has happened to the little uh, juvenile pollock, which I, I know turn into the big commercial pollock, which are uh, a valuable species? Great, thanks for your question. Thank you.
1: I'll field the uh, the cod question and let the fisherman Ted Hoskins field the pollock question. <laughs> um, but I'm glad the listener knows that those harbor pollock are actually grow up to be the great big giant pollock because they do, and many people think they're two different uh, species. I have not heard about the. Uh, worm or snail or whatever in the codfish but what I will say is that um, we've learned a lot about cod both through historical work that Ted Ames has done and also through some really wonderful work um, in Newfoundland we've learned that cod probably home to their natal spawning area and we've also learned that cod um, co-migrate with herrings so that herring family so that uh, part of what may be uh, the cause of the loss of the inshore cod spawning in eastern Gulf of Maine is the loss of alewives, which makes the Penobscot River project really <clears throat> of great significance to bringing back groundfish. Um, if we can restore the runs of alewives, we can probably uh, help those spawning beds come back. The other thing we've learned is that cod have some learned behavior, and some cod migrations appear to need large individuals to lead them. So there's complexity in this business of rebuilding fish and what we're thinking is we've got there's some good signs in the ground fish business in eastern Maine right now and we need to make sure that we get protection in in time that the natural recovery can happen and that we can restore the age structure in the in the fishery.
3: Hmm. Pollock said. Pollock uh, I wish I knew more than uh, than I do about what's going on we've noticed for several years that the uh, small juveniles that used to be around all the docks have been disappearing, and this year I noticed out on Ilaho that just are absent altogether. They were very few last year, and uh they just are not there now and you have to run off to some of the ledges outside before you get any of them and It's like many other species that move out to where they uh where the food supply is because that's what they're doing is is finding food and the other thing you notice of course inside is that uh, you, you go rowing around at night and you do not see uh, the the water sparking the way it used to. Uh, the, the, the food in the water is not there and there's a lot of things that we have to learn uh, because like we go to a restaurant, they go to where the food is and they know where it is and they know where it isn't. Right. And so, go ahead. And,
1: and this is a good example of um, how we think this community-based approach can be so helpful. For years, fishermen and in Maine have been talking about how the herring aren't coming to the shore anymore and how you don't see Brit washed up and the the, the small herring um, washed up on along the tide line on beaches and so forth. And the federal approach has been, that's okay, there's plenty of fish out there. On average, in the Northwest Atlantic, we have lots of herring right now. And the fishermen have been saying, but the behavior is different, something right. is different. Well, we now know that herring return to natal spawning areas. And so what may have been being identified is the depletion of specific spawning stock and we've lost the capacity of that part of the ecosystem right now. So this is a great example of of, uh,
0: why that local knowledge needs to be blended with the science. Uh, Not only local
3: knowledge, but what do you do about it? Yes. I mean, how do you attend to these changing patterns? And when there's an absence of one thing, what comes in to take its place? Mm-hmm. What are the changes we can expect mm-hmm. within the ocean?
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So going back then to the Downeast Initiative, Aaron, um, as you've had these initial conversations with fishermen, um, they seem um, to be looking both at the stewardship side and at the, the long-term hope that there'll be a restored fishery.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um you know it's encouraging right now because there are a number of fishermen even after not having fished for the last 10 or 15 years or more in some cases uh, they're they're still excited about the prospect of recovering this fishery for the next generation and uh and, and this in really providing some stewardship of this resource
0: mm. you've you've mentioned some of the the others involved in this and you've men- mentioned some of the major environmental um kind of organizations conservation organizations um you know a long time ago that might have not happened what 's what 's changed so that those folks are saying, "Oh, this is part of our work too
2: well um i 'll let Robin talk a little bit about <laughs> okay. that but i 'll just just to start it off what I see is that um it seems like uh, the the fishermen and the environmental organizations have uh, found some common ground, and that is that they realize they they have to work together to uh, restore this resource, and that the way to do it is to to change the scale of management so that it 's brought to a more local level and um, you, you manage it uh, at an, an area-specific uh, basis. The, the way that Robin was talking about fish coming back to their uh, natal spawning grounds, if you can manage at that level, then that's the, the most appropriate way to do it. And I think uh, fishermen have realized that, and I think major environmental organizations have realized that, at least in this region. And that's why we've we've gotten a, a unique coalition of individuals and groups together through the, the Area Management Coalition. Mm.
0: Robin, um,
1: additional I, comment? I think it's just that, uh, both groups have dared to to take a step in the in that direction. If fishermen are standing up and saying, "What's going on is crazy. The way we're fishing is crazy. The way the management's going is leading only to consolidation and larger and larger scale technology." When we're recognizing that we really can hurt them, then so fishermen have taken a step toward needing limits, recognizing limits, and and the environmentalists for a long time, um, I think were you know scaremongering. Let's say and and using that as but. Now that they're really engaged in trying to figure out a solution, they realize that that uh, responsible fishermen are an essential piece of it. You can't have stewardship on the water without the people out there, part of that stewardship. It mm. just doesn't work.
3: Mm. And in the middle, of course, is the scientific community uh, between the environmentalists on one side and the fishermen on the other. And what has happened over the last decade is this thing we call collaborative science, which has allowed... Uh, the connection to take place and the beginnings of trust and uh, recognition that both have things to learn from each other. The scientist has a great deal to learn from the fisherman, and the fisherman has things to learn from, mm-hmm. from the scientist. And then then the environmentalists and others can work together and, mm-hmm. and we can move uh, productively.
1: Robin? This down-east groundfish situation is one of these things that almost everyone can understand. We have a situation where there are only one or two Federal permits left with any rights to go fishing east of Rockland left. We have no fish and ways, we have those, no
0: fishermen. Okay, so the, the, the permit, when you say permits, the, tell Let's, us a little bit about that, Federal that
1: permits. Works. Federal permits, you can buy and sell them through a, a process of where you buy and sell a boat. Okay. And um, the only way you can go f- ground fishing in federal waters is with a federal permit. What's happened is we lost our fish. Our fishermen went lobstering. Their permits weren't active. The federal government took them away because they weren't active, and so the most of the rights to go fishing for groundfish in the Gulf of Maine are now consolidated in areas pretty much Portland, New Bedford, Gloucester, um, and um, so if the groundfish ever come back, right now there won't be any coastal community members in eastern Maine who can go ground fishing. Mm-hmm. We'll have fish jumping out of the water, but we won't be able mm-hmm. to catch them. So there's a justice. Issue and a community survival issue there, and second of all, our fish are persistently depleted. They're coming back in the Western Gulf of Maine. There's quite a bit of protection for ki- critical habitat areas like Je- Jeffrey's Ledge in the Western Gulf of Maine. We have no no protection like that um, here, so we're available to be plundered whenever there's a little pulse of fish here. Mm. And um, so, so we now have a a unique opportunity to say. We are fishing communities. None of us have a have a ox to be gored right now. We can look at how can we set up a sustainable fishery, and we're going to propose it to the federal government and say this really makes sense. Hmm. And we're working our boundary fishermen, our the Port Clyde fishermen and Mid Coast uh, Fishermen's Association, and uh, they are working on similar ideas for conservation. And once we get our ideas together and they get their ideas, we'll we'll. We'll work them out so that we are definitely working with them. And um, it seems to me that this is really a unique opportunity to propose something different.
0: Mm. You're listening to Talk of the Towns. We're talking about managing the commons, fisheries in down east Maine. We welcome your participation as well. Give us a call at 1-866-625-9378. That's toll free. Or locally at 469-0500. Join our guests, uh, Robin Alden, Aaron Doherty and Ted Hoskins as we talk about um, fisheries in down East Maine. So uh, the, the stage seems to be set. One of the, the, the pieces that you keep bumping up against is the, the regulatory community. In other words, you've got scientists who might be working on this, that, but they not, might not be part of the regulation process. And, Robin, you said when you're, you're almost ready to propose this, or it has been proposed, it's been stalled or something, what do you need to do to, to get this moving? What's the, what are the next steps to really move this forward?
1: We've got a. Um, we have an opening. The current groundfish amendment that's being worked on is Amendment 16, and the council decided they were not going to consider area management in Amendment 16. That gives us till Amendment 17, when they have said that they would consider area management. Our feeling is that we have to get our plan figured out. Hmm. We have to have broad-based support from communities and and fishermen. We have to know what it is we're proposing, how we would if if the dog caught the car what would it do with it you know um so if we actually were able we're talking about actually creating a permit bank buying some of these federal permits and figuring out how to split them up so that every community could have some small scale permits available that would not be owned by anybody but would be cycled through and Mm -hmm. available to community fishermen um so we need to look at Fundraising for that, we need to look at the legal structure of that. There's a lot of work to do. We're aiming to have the main uh, structure of this figured out by next January, so that we then can start talking seriously with state regulators, with who hopefully will become our advocates in the federal uh, federal arena, and so that we can talk with the other fishermen who need to be fishermen who have current permits and who fish this area, who need to be able to be on board with it. Mm.
3: And and then the regulators are trying to ask, do you know how this works on the ground? Mm. In other words, will it actually work? Mm -hmm. Can you get fishermen to work together and put together a plan across a broad area that will uh, accomplish the goals that you set out? And that's what a lot of DEI is doing, and we're going to be doing training programs. We're going to be uh, developing local alliances in any community that will be responsive to us and then uh, support those local groups as they learn the skills of working together and uh, understanding what the regulatory uh, requirements are, how you get to a place where we can we can uh, put before the council a plan that actually will work, and mm. we feel that we have a real good direct uh, beginning on this.
0: And, and you've got these, the historical record of clams and lobsters to kind of support you to say, right. these things have worked, why wouldn't it work um, on, a, on an and, area management scale? And
1: we have that culture in all the, on the fishing communities that we're working with are steeped in that culture. Mm-hmm. They're already mm-hmm. used to operating that way.
0: Mm-hmm. And is this unique to, to Maine or are there other experiments going on? You learned about this in Nova Scotia, some of this work, um, Ted. There's a lot
3: of it going on in other parts of the world. Uh, the West Coast and uh, uh, Alaska have been doing a good deal uh, with community work, and there's a lot for us to learn. Uh, we have not discovered how to do it effectively uh, on the East Coast here, but we are learning. Mm-hmm. And that's the process we're in right now, and that's what Aaron is uh, overseeing, our, our movement toward figuring out how this actually can work
0: mm. Aaron what excites you about this work what what, what uh, gets you up in the morning and says I'm gonna I'm gonna get going on this Be- before answering your yeah,
2: question, yeah. can I, can yeah, I respond? please um, just going back to what Ted was saying it, this is very new to this area and uh, it's that means that it's a major mindset change for the federal regulators that are overseeing uh, ground fish in this region. So, it's um, you know it's a, it's a new idea and it's something that is is sort of slow to change. But I think uh, some people are starting to come around and move in this direction. And, and we are looking to other areas like Alaska for for good examples. But um, so what what gets me going on this issue? Um, you know, I I was just talking to Robin on the way up that. I felt great after last night's um, discussion with fishermen in Stonington, and it's exactly that, working at the local uh, grassroots level, talking to the fishermen themselves and hearing the ideas that they have. And they have a lot of really creative, um, well-articulated ideas, well-developed ideas that um, I think if uh, the the decision-makers at the federal level... Um, you know, had more opportunity to listen to this, that they would be very impressed and want to hopefully uh, implement more of those ideas. So that I guess that's what keeps me going is um, is talking to fishermen and, and traveling around down east and seeing the work that they're doing and how invested they are.
0: Mm-hmm. Robin, you said you wanted um, also to, to mention some of the other issues that are kind of facing the fisheries, and one had to do with lobsters and whales. Um, tell us a little bit about <laughs> the background there, so that
1: oh give us some sense. Yes, right. <laughs> Um, I guess basically, uh, the Marine Mammal Protection Act is a—it's a different federal law than the uh, Fishery Management Law, and it's much more absolute. You basically can't um, harm a whale. Harm a whale. Mm. In a, you can't bother a whale. Mm-hmm. And uh, if there's any chance you might bother a whale, it needs to be not happening. Um, and so the federal government has just uh, published. National Marine Fisheries Service has just published a final rule, which is open for comment for till the middle of September, and it's going to require um, that we don't use floating rope anymore um, in much of Down East area. Well, it's inside of a line that's been drawn, and what happens is that it's it's very close to the shore throughout the Down East area, and.
0: Presumably, because that means that the floating line is allowing lobs—I mean, the whales—to get caught up. to in swim pools. into it right. and get right. caught, right.
1: either their f- right. their uh, fins or their m- mouths. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um, the problem with that is that we have very rough bottom, and if the rope, you have to put more rope on a trap than uh, than there is height to the water because you've got tide. The more tide you have, the more scope you've got to give. So that the rope is is uh, going back and forth, and it will tangle itself up if it 's always down on the bottom. it will tangle itself up on all of the boulders that we have, and any of the boaters that are listening know that we have some unexpected boulders, and the bottom <laughs> looks even rougher than the than what you can see on the charts so right. um, so this is an extremely serious issue, and the problem is that the problem for Penobscot East is we. Our, organize, we, our whole purpose is to help people organize to do constructive things that have to do with the future of fishing. Not just saying hell no to limits, but saying, gee, that's a stupid way. Why don't you do it this way? Because we know something and we we acknowledge that we need to do something, but we're, we're going to suggest a different way. With this marine mammal business, it's a, it's a lot bigger than any of us. And it's very hard to know what to do. Uh, the the lobster associations, both down east and Maine Lobstermen's Association, are working on it. The state's been working diligently on it, um, but it is a big, huge Mack truck coming down the pike, at, and it's going to have undue um, impact on the eastern. Three zones of this of the lobster fishery. Mm. So, if
0: listeners are interested in learning more about any of these things, I suppose Penobscot East Resource Center is one place
3: to one place, and we can send
1: yeah. them to people that are even more in touch than we are.
3: There are okay. some hearings going on. MLA is having a series of hearings, and uh, if they called Penobscot East Resource Center, we could give them the dates and times. Uh, there will be, be in Rockland and Ellsworth, and Ellsworth. Next
1: week, there'll be one in, in um, Ellsworth.
0: Okay, so before we um, kind of go to the last question about um, inspiration that you take from this work, how do they get in touch with the Penobscot East Resource Center, Robin?
1: Phone number is 367-2708, and you can also reach us through our website, www.penobscotteast.org.
0: Okay, great. So um, again, the kind of wrap up question I uh, frequently turn to is is what what um, and, and Aaron's begun to talk about this a little bit. But what inspires you to to do this work? Um, what are your hopes um, that that in the long run um, results from the work of Penobscot East Resource and, and all the other things that are going on to promote kind of a local um, local fishery, locally managed fishery? We'll start with Aaron and work our way around.
2: Well, I think what first interested me is this uh, vision that um, Robin and Ted and others helped articulate, and that is a rejuvenated groundfish fishery that can support communities down east. Um, you know, at, at different seasons, and like I said earlier, they can rotate in with lobster and scallops and other other um, species and uh, you know, support their communities. So we have. Uh, thriving uh, fishermen and thriving communities that are supported by uh, a local fishery.
0: Mm. So that vision of the of the initiative really is what keeps you going. Yeah. Great. Robin?
1: I uh, feel in some ways as if I've been Johnny OneNote through my whole career because I the idea of fishing is so wonderful. It is a livelihood for so many people that can be um, – that can – keep on going forever if you take care of it. And so we all know that taking care of the environment is so important um, just for our own future as a species. And um, so this is a business that requires being good stewards. And for me, it's trying to be a part of having the people who are harvesting the resources become those stewards in order to have a healthy business. Mm-hmm. And so it's a, it's just an amazing thing. And to me, these communities and the fact that fishermen have a chance to be fishermen be self-employed whatever it is there's something important for human beings about that type of life and um so that's and i think here in maine we have more of a chance of of demonstrating what that is that it can keep going and that it's worthwhile um in many places
3: Well, I'd pick up on what Robin was uh, moving toward at the end of her remarks, and that is the value of the community. Uh, There are values within community that need to be supported and protected just as much as uh, the resources that are out in the water. And what we're talking about in terms of community-based resource management pays attention to community and to families and to the interconnections that we have with one another as well as to the resources upon which we depend And that, to me, is extremely exciting because that's where life happens. That's why we do what we do. Uh, It's not just to catch a fish, but it's to feed a family. Mm. And feeding the family is is taking care of the community and taking care of life uh, in an extraordinary way. And we can do that. And so that keeps us going.
0: Thank you all for being here. We've come to that time when I want to remind you that this program was produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. Join us on the second Friday at this time for Family Radio Forum and on the fourth Friday of each month for Talk of the Towns. Our theme music is a medley from Coronach on a Balmain House Highland Music Recording. Our shows are now archived on weru.org. Click on Archives. Thanks again to our guests in studio, Robin Alden, Director of the Penobscot East Resource Center, Aaron Doherty, Project Director of the Down East Initiative, and Ted Hoskins of both main Seacoast Mission and the Penobscot East um, Resource Center. Um, Thanks to those of you who called in and and, uh, shared questions and experience. Thanks to our underwriters. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program, and stay tuned for On the Wing with Joel Raymond. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning. ¶¶